Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. This morning we're going to be in the book of Romans. This is part of our, we're just continuing on this Jesus in the Bible series. Uh, We're spending about three months on some of the high points of the New Testament epistles that really explain to us and for us what Jesus accomplished on the cross and who he was and who he is to us now. Today we're in Romans 3. This is a very core foundational passage for us. But before we get into Romans 3, I have found that Many people do not know the background and context of Romans. We almost treat it differently than we would treat any other New Testament epistle. In fact, if you study the book of Romans, you will find that many people will call Romans a a theological treatise or a theological essay, and that's not untrue. It's just Romans, like Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, was written for a purpose, and the purpose wasn't to write an essay. The purpose was to address actual issues in the church in Rome, and I found that many people don't understand the actual issues that were uh, going on in the church in Rome, so I want to illustrate them so that we know what's Paul, what are the questions Paul's answering here. So imagine this with me. Imagine that the governor of Pennsylvania uh, declared an order, all right-handed people must leave Philadelphia. They have to leave the city, everybody that's right-handed. Well, that's 90% of of the population. Uh, So all the right-handed people have to leave. Now, I'm left-handed, so I'm just spreading out. You know, finally, I can sit and eat without bumping my elbows into another person. But imagine if all the right-handed people had to leave our church. If all the right-handed people were kicked out of the city, and all that was left were left-handed people. You know, there'd only be about 20 or 30 people left in our church. And those 20 or 30 people, imagine what that would do to a congregation if if 90% of the congregation was removed because of some sort of like, uh, you know, genetic uh, identifier or marker. There would only be 20 or 30 of us left. My wife would have to leave, so we would put the children's ministry uh, under Aubrey McCauley. She'd have to run the children's ministry because she let me know that she's left-handed. Christine Keough would have to run all of our administrative stuff, church office stuff, so we'd put her in charge of that. She would probably quit immediately uh, after the way I do things. Worship team. Scott Newcomer, Anna Wakeman, Alexa Reese. I've appointed them to run the worship team. Our head deacon is Sadie Davis. She's four years old. But we're running out of, you know, we're running out of people. We have all the right-handed people had to leave. That's 90% of the church. The 10% that's left has to do everything. Imagine though how that would impact the congregation. It would be hard, right? but also some of the changes that would be made. So all of a sudden, all the left-handed people, myself included, we'd be like, well, listen, we ain't never buying no more spiral-bound notebooks. You know how hard it is for a left-handed person to write on a spiral-bound notebook? It's like writing on a slinky. You have to arc your hand all the way around. In college, all they bought was right-handed desks. So if I ever wanted to write, I had to sit sideways in my chair to reach all the way around. Have you ever experienced lead poisoning from just writing a letter? 
the way the ink or the pencil lead just like slides on you. I, I would look, I would look like RoboCop, like I was turning into like a cyborg. I just all the ink or the lead that would take place. Uh, how hard is it to find left-handed scissors, baseball mitts, things like that? All of a sudden, no, no challenges. It would actually be in a way kind of nice. All you people with right privilege would get out of here so that those of us, we wouldn't have to swim upstream all the time to just survive and succeed in this world, and maybe your right guilt would kick in, and you would understand how easy you've had it all this time. I'm making a joke, but I'm also making a point. So, it would really, really impact our church if this happened, right? If, if 90%. Well, that's basically what happened to the church in Rome, but it wasn't based on left-handed versus right-handed. In 49 AD, the emperor, emperor Claudius made a rule, every Jewish person has to leave Rome because there were arguments and conflicts in the Jewish community specifically over Jesus. They're arguing over it. And he just said, if you're Jewish, you gotta leave. And that had a major, major impact on the church in Rome, which was mostly Jewish at that point. So this, we call this the Edict of Claudius. It's actually referenced in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 2. We're going to throw that up on the screen. This is just a, a reference to Aquila and Priscilla. It just says that they had to leave Rome. It says that this, uh, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy. Where is Rome? Italy right? Having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, that's the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. That's a reference to the edict of Claudius, but this is also in historical documents. Claudius said, if you're Jewish, you got to leave in AD 49. Well, most of the Christian church at this point, this is only 16 years after Jesus's resurrection, the church is mostly Jewish. In fact, we don't even call it the church at that point. It's just a subcategory category of Judaism. If you were a follower of Jesus who was Jewish, you just went to the local synagogue and followed a different rabbi, and you had a different opinion on the Messiah. And so they were, these were Jewish followers of Jesus who were part of synagogues in Rome, and they would share the faith because Jesus, you know, their Messiah said, well, take the gospel to all nations. And so they would share the faith with these people in Rome, Italians, North Africans, Arabs, and they'd bring these Italian, African, Northern, Arab, uh, Northern African, Arab followers of Jesus to their Jewish synagogue. Imagine that. They're, they're starting to integrate the Jewish synagogue, and everyone's showing up, and it's like, well, I don't know. Do we need to make them eat kosher? Do we need to make them get circumcised if they're going to follow Jesus? I mean, like, because we all, by default, were when we were children, so do we... Do we, are they going to have to learn all the Jewish holidays? Are they going to have to learn to speak Hebrew? And that was kind of an issue. And then all of a sudden, Claudius says, Jewish people out. And this church, that, this synagogue that was majority Jewish is now 100% non-Jewish or what we call Gentile. In fact, it no longer, it ceases to become a synagogue. This edict of Claudius, when they kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome, is one of the major events that moved Christianity out of synagogues and into homes. When all the Jewish people were kicked out, synagogues closed. But the non-Jewish followers of Jesus wanted to continue to meet. So where did they meet? In homes. This is one of the major events that distinguished Christianity as a, as a distinct religion from Judaism. It was originally viewed as a sect or a subcategory of Judaism. But once the Jews had to leave Rome, 
all of a sudden Christianity emerges. Like, wait, there's still these people behind who are worshiping this Jewish Messiah, but they're not Jewish. And then all of a sudden, now the church is starting to kind of spread out and distinguish itself. It's no longer considered a sect of Judaism. It's its own belief system. Well, this takes place for five years, and Claudius dies, and all the Jewish people are allowed to come back to Rome. And can you imagine if all the right-handed people came back to our left-handed church and found all the changes we had made? So these Jewish people, they come back and they, they look up their old church, they look up their old co-followers of Jesus of different races and ethnicities, and they go back and they find, whoa, you guys have changed a lot. Why are you wrapping strips of pork around shrimp at the potlucks? How, how come you aren't celebrating Passover? I noticed you did a baby dedication and the baby wasn't circumcised. I notice you're not using Hebrew or any of the Old Testament in your service. Like what? These Jewish people would come back to their communities of faith and be like, what are you doing? And the Gentiles were like, well, that was like your thing, not our thing. Jesus didn't say anything about eating this way or these rituals or these holidays. That was kind of like a cultural thing. And so that created a clash in the church in Rome. And about a year to three years after that, Paul heard about it and he wrote the book of Romans to answer a lot of these issues. A lot of the tension was racial, a lot of it was cultural, a lot of it was theological. So Paul writes Romans to address these issues because this is the question that was arising. How are we supposed to get right with God then? If it's not through Jewish holidays, if it's not through eating kosher, if it's not through circumcision, if it's not through the law of Moses, how are we supposed to get right with God? And Paul answers that question specifically in Romans 3.28 and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, faith in Jesus is what makes you right with God. It's not holidays, it's not language, it's not culture, it's not religious practices. Faith in Jesus is what makes us right with God. I'm gonna read Romans 3, 21 through 30. This is, as I mentioned before, like this is a foundational passage for the church of Jesus Christ. This will be on the screen. You can uh, follow along with me if you'd like. Romans 3, 21 through 30. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain, and this is the key phrase here, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. That's Romans 21 through 30. There's a couple points that Paul makes in this passage that I think are relative, uh, relevant to their situation. What are the ideas that Paul 
drives home throughout the entire book of Romans is you're all equal. And he makes two kind of, he says that in two ways. He says, all have sinned, so you're all equally sinful. All have fallen short of the glory of God, so you're all missing the mark, right? And then he, sa- he says in Romans 12, now become one body. But the second way he says it is, there's only one way to, to be saved. There's not a Jewish way and a Gentile way. There's not two different ways to be saved. There's not a second option. There's not a plan B. There's not a different path. You're all equally in sin, and there's only one way, and it's the same way for all of us. So he's applying, uh, he, he's using this to let them know that they are equal. It actually says this, I want to just go, in verse 22, he says, there is no distinction between the Gentiles and the Jewish people. There's no distinction. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. This is a good reminder. He doesn't pump them up. He actually brings them low. Hey, we are all equally in sin. This might have been helpful for the Jewish people to hear because maybe they had some confidence in being, you know, the chosen people of God. And Paul does argue later in Romans, like, there is a benefit. There is a benefit to being of Jewish descent because you're the people who bring the testimony of God to the world. You're the ones he has chosen, but there's no saving benefit. Everyone comes through Jesus the same. And so uh, he actually goes on and he continues. He says uh, in verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. There are actually 15 questions that Paul asks in the book of Romans that are kind of like these rhetorical questions. Is God the God of the Jews only? 15 times where Paul asks a question to remind them, hey, we're all equal. We're all the same. Uh, No one is more valuable than anyone else. And he reminds them in verses 28 through 30, there is only one way to be saved. There's not a way for this person and a way for that person. He says, we maintain that mankind, humanity, a man, is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jewish people, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the non-Jewish people, through faith is one. The same God that justifies each group, is is, that God is the same God. This is going back to Deuteronomy 6.4 where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So he's reminding them that they're all equal and there's only one way to be saved. Now he was addressing this along racial lines, but let me open this up a little bit. To people that have never been to church or people who grew up in church, there is still only one way. There's not a church person way and a non-church person way. Faith in Jesus is what makes us right with God. To people who live in the United States and to people who live elsewhere, there is still only one way. There's not an American way and another way. Faith in Jesus is the only way for a person to be made right with God. To a person who is in recovery or to someone who is clean and sober, there is still only one way. There's not a clean and sober way and an addiction way. To men and to women, there is still only one way, not a male savior and a female savior. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that makes men or women right with God. To married people, singled people, divorced people, widows and widowers, there is still only one way. 
Is this, you getting where I'm coming from here? Am I driving this home a little too hard, beating a dead horse? Kids, teenagers, adults, the elderly, there is only one way. The way to be made right with God doesn't change based on your demographic, your age, your finances, your education. The only way for humanity to be made right with God, according to Romans 3.28, is faith in Jesus. We'll talk about what that means, uh, what that looks like in a moment. But I want everyone to understand there is only one way, and it is faith in Jesus. You don't get to you know, an age where you get your AARP card and you're saved. Men aren't treated differently than women. Ethnicities aren't treated differently. This is all, there is only one way, and it is through faith in Jesus. I really want to make sure that this is clear because there's still a lot of confusion in the, the church in America about the relationship between the church and Israel as if there's two paths. There's one path. It's through Jesus. Jesus comes to us through the Jewish people. Therefore, that's the path even they need to walk on. It's the path that we walk on. Faith in Jesus is what makes us right with God. Now, not only does he apply this equally to everyone, he reminds him in verses 21 and 24, this is a gift, not a reward. This is not something you earned and cashed in with your good deeds and religious behavior. Verses 21 and 24, he says, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, and then in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He reminds us that this is a gift and not a reward. So verse 21 says that the way to be right with God has now been made known and it's apart from the law of Moses. He says apart from the law, he's referring to the law of Moses. Think of 613 Old Testament commands and everything around that. He says apart from the law, being right with God has now been manifested. And it's, it's, it's aside from the law, it comes through Jesus and faith in Jesus. That's how you're made right with God. He also says in verse 24, he uses the word gift. And we receive this gift by putting our faith in Jesus. Now, I don't think a lot of us struggle with the law of Moses. Do you guys ever like lose sleep over whether you mixed cotton and linen or, you know, like mixed fabrics or didn't you shave the side of your beards correctly? No one's losing a lot of sleep over that? Okay. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, we kind of have our own law. I would maybe call it like church law. The righteousness that Jesus gives us has nothing to do with being born in a Christian family, has nothing to do with good deeds that we perform, whether we attend church or are, are a member, how religious or spiritual we are, whether we give gifts to the church, whatever sacrifices, uh, animal sacrifices or otherwise that we might make. The righteousness or being made right with God that we receive through Jesus is aside from those things. Those things, we, you know, I want, I want my kids to grow up in church. I want to make sacrifices for Jesus. I, all of that stuff is good stuff for the most part, but that's not what makes you right with God. In fact, it should be the evidence that you've been made right with God. But it, it doesn't have a salvific merit. It doesn't bring you to salvation. It might be the evidence of your salvation, but it's not what brings you to salvation. The way to be made right with God is to put our trust in Jesus. It's a gift. Verse 24 says, it is a gift that comes through grace. How do you, I mean, pretend that you're well-behaved and have good manners. 
What is the proper response when you receive a gift? Thank you. Right, okay. Most of you got it. I know not everyone gets it, but most of you got it. Thank you. What if it's a gift that you really want? Maybe actual genuine gratitude. Wow, I've always wanted this. I was hoping I would get this. And then you use it and you treasure it, right? You, you respond with gratitude. The use, the activity, the actions are not to earn it. It's the result of receiving the gift that you've wanted. Does that make sense? The Christian life is really supposed to be a life of gratitude. Like our prayer lives should be driven by gratitude that Jesus has saved us. Our worship, the sacrifices we make, the service that we render to other people really should be how we show gratitude to God for being saved. But one of the reasons that it's not is because we receive it as a gift, but it's not a gift we want. Sometimes we don't really want the gift that Jesus offered. We, we are like, uh, it's like getting socks. It's like, uh, I know I need this. You know, I, I know I need the socks. I know I need the underwear. I know I need to not go to hell, but like, I'm not really excited about this. And you see it in people. So they're like, oh, thank you. You know, when my kids on Christmas morning get something they need but they don't want, it's like, thanks, and then on to the next thing. And sometimes that's what our worship is like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thanks for saving me. Because we're not convinced that we need it. But I'm, I, I'm hoping today to convince you it's a good gift. It's a gift you want. It's one of those things that should be like, ah, I can't believe I got this. I've always wanted this. And then it results in gratitude and thank you. Know, I, I love it when my kids pop up and like come and hug me. You're the best dad ever. You didn't think that when I got you socks. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If, if your Christian life was driven by that type of gratitude, it would be joyful. It would draw other people. It would prevent you from burnout. Because it would just be this overflowing gratitude that you receive. Well, like I said, Paul makes this point, it is a gift. And I want to make this point, it is a gift you want. Even if you don't know you want it. I'm telling you, life in Jesus is, is a gift that you want. Because it's, it's not, I know you guys all know this already. It is not just for the future to make sure that when you die, you can avoid hell. It changes your life today. I mean, it, I wouldn't have my family if it wasn't for life in Jesus. I wouldn't have friendships and relationships and, and job and a lot of the stuff that, that I enjoy if it wasn't for life in Jesus. There's benefits now and there is ultimate benefit later. Does that make sense? It's a gift that you want. Now, uh, I've been waiting until now to try to explain this, this concept. Um, faith in Jesus is what makes us right with God. You might not understand that we need to be made right with God. Uh, the sin of Adam and Eve, combined with your own sin, has created like relational tension between you and God. And if you've ever had relational tension, you ever have an argument with someone and you're like, oh, I feel it. You're, you play it in your head over and over. You feel kind of tense. You're not sure how to, when you see them, you're like, oh, I don't know if I should avoid them or talk to them and how this is supposed to go. You ever had that kind of relational tension? We have that with God. Thanks, Adam and Eve. But also, 
thanks, you, because we aren't any better or different than Adam and Eve. We have this relational tension with God, and I think a lot of us feel it in our souls. We have to be made right. What? So the question is, what has to be done to make us right with God? Like, and, and they're struggling with this in the book of Romans because the Jewish Christians were like, yeah, I know what needs to be done to be made right with God. Uh, get circumcised, eat kosher, celebrate these holidays. And the Gentile Christians are like, well, I don't know because I don't see Jesus saying a lot of that stuff. That's like an Old Testament thing. And, and Paul addresses this, Paul and the apostles address this in Acts 15 and other, way, and other places. But Paul has to tell them in Acts, uh, in Romans, faith in Jesus is what makes you right with God. Faith in Jesus is what repairs a relationship. Faith in Jesus is what restores a relationship. So let's go on to the final thing that Paul explains here because this is going to uh, kind of like underscore that. Verse 25 tells us that faith in Jesus removes God's wrath against us. Let me read verse 25. Uh, God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now that's a really confusing verse. Anyone lost on any of that? That word propitiation? I don't know, that's like, a word that I can't find anywhere in the English language other than like this verse and one or two other verses. It says, God publicly displayed Jesus as a propitiation. What's a propitiation? A propitiation is an act or a sacrifice to appease God's wrath, okay? I think of it this way, and this is not a perfect illustration, so cut me some slack here, but it's the best one I could think of. Okay, have you ever been angry at the end of a day you go to work, car won't start. You get to work, someone, one of your coworkers being a jerk. Someone eat your, eats your lunch in the fridge. You're stuck in traffic on the way home, and it's just building all day, right? And you can't let off the steam that's building at work because you're at work and you need that job. You get home, things aren't going well at home. Have you ever had to scream into a pillow? <laughs> yeah, right, I know you all have. Stop acting like you haven't. If you haven't had to scream into a pillow, have you ever had to punch a pillow? Or a punching bag? I've treated a pillow like a punching bag before, where I just, I have this wrath that's been being stored up all this time, and finally, I, I let this pillow have it. Why do I let the pillow have it? Because if I don't let the pillow have it, I'm going to let something else have it, Right? And it's going to leave consequences. The pillow is the propitiation. It's the thing that takes the beating to get all of my wrath out. You understand? You, I, when I'm standing over that pillow, that pillow has a big blue Dallas star on it. And once I'm standing over that pillow, I, okay, I'm, I'm embellishing a little bit, like heaving sweating Ugh. and I finally got all of the wrath I've exhausted all of my wrath on the pillow now I'm free to go have a relationship with my wife and my kids no wrath no anger no fr it's all been left on the pillow the pillow is the propitiation it's the the act of me pummeling the pillow is the propitiation does that make sense it says in this verse Jesus was the propitiation through his blood 
Jesus was the one who took the wrath that you and I created, you and I provoked, you and I deserved, rightly, and it says actually in this passage that God left previous sins, the sins of the old covenant, he left them unpunished. Just like when you want to freak out at work, but you know you can't. God left the previous sins unpunished, and he stored up all this wrath, and he poured it all out on Jesus. And the, the crazy thing is Jesus is the only one that never provoked the wrath. Jesus is the, never one, the only one that never deserved it. You and I are the ones that deserve it. You and I are the ones that, was, that were leading to God storing up wrath. But he, it's, it, I, almost, I picture it this way. After the crucifixion, God is just standing over Jesus, heaving, and now he has finally exhausted all of his wrath. There's no wrath left for anyone that is in Jesus. He's poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. Now, there are people who will say, yeah, but I don't believe that Jesus thing. Okay, so then wrath, their wrath, their portion of God's wrath is still waiting for them. And that's, what, that's where hell comes into the picture. Does that make sense? But then there are other people who say, sign me up, put me behind Jesus. Put me in Jesus. Put me with Jesus. Does that make sense? So all of God's wrath for Christians has been exhausted on Jesus. Here's the good news about that. There's no more wrath left for you and I. If we're in Jesus you don't have to worry about God's wrath. See, I know that sometimes we think that we're going to scare people into the kingdom by like uh, scaring them with God's wrath. And, and that does actually work. It's not my preferred method of sharing the gospel. It does work. The thing is, once a person gives their life to Jesus, you can't keep intimidating them with threats of the wrath of God because there's no wrath for the Christian left. That's all been given to Jesus. You might be able to get me to trust Jesus by warning me about the wrath of God, but now that I'm in Jesus, the wrath of God does not apply to me. Does that make sense? No one here that's put their faith in Jesus needs to worry about God's wrath. Now, there's still discipline, but discipline is for a different purpose. Wrath is for punishment and judgment. Discipline is so you're more like Jesus. There might still be persecution, but persecution comes from other sources and that has a different purpose. There's still trials and tribulations and circumstances of life, but I want you to know they're not God's wrath. You know, when something bad happens in your life, it's not God saying, I'm gonna get you. If God wanted to get you, you'd be gotten by now, right? So this is one of the things that should provoke in us gratitude for Jesus is he took that beating. Now, let me continue. Inevitably, people hear that and they're like, ugh. It kind of makes God sound like he's got an anger problem. It kind of makes God sound abusive. And people have actually rejected this idea, this, this, specifically this word propitiation. Like, I don't know, that makes God sound like an abusive parent, and I don't like that. And so they've thrown that out completely, but here's the problem. It's right here. <laughs> this word propitiation is a specific word that applies to exactly what I've just explained to you. The reason that people have a hard time with this concept and would rather reject it is they don't think God's wrath is justified. Why is he all upset? <laughs> What's he mad about? So let's talk about that. Why would God be angry at sin? 
I mean, we're never angry at sin. Wrong. (laughs) When my kids fight, don't I get angry at sin? When you watch the news, don't you get angry at sin? And you and I aren't even perfect. You and I don't even have these high standards that God has. But when you see some sort of injustice, someone's taken advantage of, someone's oppressed on the news, don't you get a little hyped up? Are you able to sit there and just go neutral? Because God's not. God's not able to look at sin. God's not able to look at injustice. God's not able to look at child abuse. God's not able to look at rape. God's not able to look at these things and be like, that's why he works up his wrath because he hates this stuff even more than you and I do. And almost, not all, I guess, maybe all, just about every sin is, is perpetrated on a person who is made in his image, Right? When you and I sin, it does not exist in a vacuum. When we sin, we have an impact on other people. We hurt other people. We damage other people. And those people, saved or not, are still made in God's image. So even when we harm another person, even if they aren't a follower of Jesus, we're harming a person who's made in God's image, which is also then an affront to God. Because we're, we're harming an image bearer. Does, that, does all this make sense? If you don't think the wrath of God is justified, I don't know, you must be one of those people that like doesn't care about others getting harmed. But he cares about other people getting harmed. He cares about the pain and the brokenness that is produced by sin. And when he sees sin, he gets worked up about it. The only sins we really get worked up about are the ones committed against us. It's easy for us to change the channel, look the other way, until it's done against us. I've said this many, many times. We get more worked up about someone cutting us off in traffic than some of the major moral issues that are going on in the United States or worldwide. I think God's wrath is actually justified. And this is, this is what I love about the, the wisdom of God. If he didn't punish sin, he would not be fair, right? If he just let sin go, you could not say he was just, fair, or good. In order to be just, fair, and good, he has to punish sin. But then if he punishes all the sinners, we're all screwed. So somehow God has to punish sin, but he also has to figure out how to save sinners and he's able to tie the whole thing together in Jesus. That's, it's like a mystery. I mean, if you ask me, <clears throat> come, up with a, come up with a situation where God can punish sin, but also save the very sinners, I couldn't come up with an answer. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know what the rules are. I don't know the loopholes. I don't know the laws. But God came up with an answer that only he could have come up with. He said, I'll have the one innocent one die for the guilty ones so that I can punish sin, but also provide an opportunity for those very sinners to be saved. And Jesus ties, he's, it's like he, he closes the loop. He, he addresses the cliffhanger of how's God gonna make people right with him? <clears throat> I'm crying because it's cold out. I'm not crying, actually. Okay, so. (laughs) Uh, I remember one time at 
this is the last church I was the assistant pastor, so I was just sitting there for this. <clears throat> but <clears throat> our pastor was teaching this same passage. And, uh, you know, sometimes Romans can get kind of dry, especially if you think it's just a theological essay. People can kind of like zone out during Romans because there's all these big words and heavy concepts. And, but, but this pastor was really good at teaching Romans. <clears throat> and he was teaching this, and this lady just stood up and started like exclaiming praises to God as he was just teaching verse by verse through Romans. <clears throat> and so when I saw that, I was like, must be something in Romans <laughs> that this lady would like stand up in the back of the church and start praising God. She like didn't take a song. He was just explaining the same thing I'll explain to you and this lady burst out in praise. And I was like, maybe I should pay more attention to Romans and the stuff that's in Romans. Okay, so if you're in Jesus, there is no wrath for you. That has all been paid for. Here's how I kind of want to summarize this. I've been thinking this week, how would I explain this concept with my kids? The idea of being made right with God through faith in Jesus. How would I explain this to my kids? <laughs> if you've been confused so far, maybe now is where it clicks for you. How would I explain this to my kids? There's going to come a day, and it's already in some ways it's already come, but it'll come again, where I have to explain to my kids, hey guys, I know you're born into a Christian family, but that is not what makes you right with God. I know your, your mom and your dad work for a church, but uh, that is not what makes you right with God. You are going to have to put your faith, your trust in Jesus someday. That's what's going to make you right with God. And until you do that, there is still a need for you to be made right with God. He's not going to be impressed when you say, oh, I grew up going to church. My mom and dad work at a church. I've gone to church all my life. I know the Bible. I made Solomon's temple in Minecraft. That's all good stuff, but it doesn't, it's not going to save a person. So I'm going to have to explain that to my kids, and you're going to have to explain that to your kids, who probably will, many of them, grow up in church, have a Christian parent, have a vaguely Christian worldview. You're going to have to explain to them, okay, that's all good, but... It is not through having Christian parents. It is not through going to church. It is not through this. It is not through that. It is through faith in Jesus. Kids, you're going to have to put your faith in Jesus at some point. Inevitably, they're going to ask, what's that look like? <laughs> Good question. That's the question we should be asking. You do not need to say any Hail Marys. You don't need to punish your body. You don't need to eat a kosher diet. You don't need to make any animal sacrifices. You don't need to speak in tongues. You don't need to strike a deal with God. You just put your whole trust in Jesus. Whole trust for what? All of it, everything. Who do you trust to save you? Jesus. Who do you trust to protect you in this life? Jesus. Who do you trust to provide for you? Jesus. Salvation is not just putting your trust in Jesus for fire insurance. Salvation is putting all of your trust in Jesus for everything. Job, family, all of this stuff. How am I going to find a spouse? I'm trusting Jesus. How am I going to pay my bills? I'm trusting Jesus. 
How am I going to be made right with God? I'm trusting Jesus. Does that make sense? How, am I, how are we going to lead a church? How am I going to lead my family? How am I going to do this? I'm going to, we're putting all of our trust in Jesus. <clears throat> now, to clarify what this means, and inevitably, people will hear this, put your trust in Jesus, so I can just do that and then live however I want? Wrong question. If you ask that question, I'm, I'm afraid you're already going down the wrong path. Inevitably, people will think, if all I have to do to be saved is believe in Jesus, and then I can just, he, he said it's not rules. He said it's not about church attendance. I guess I can just do anything I want, right? Well, thankfully, we have the book of James to just clarify exactly what justification by faith does and does not look like. And these two verses will be up on the screen. James 2, verses 17 and 26 says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And verse 26, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Listen, the question that James is addressing is, what type of faith? What quality of faith? What does it actually mean to have faith in Jesus? The type of faith that we're talking about is the type of faith that produces good works. It is not good works that lead to faith, but faith that leads to good works. Does that make sense? This is that life of gratitude that I was talking about. Faith that doesn't result in works of faith, James says, it's dead faith. And it's possible to have dead faith. Listen, when you hear, when a person hears, all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus, and they say, Jesus, I put my faith in you, and now I'm going to go back to my life of sin. That is dead faith, and it has never saved anyone. Does that make sense? It's the type of faith that results in some action. It's the type of faith that results in works of faith, not works of the law. I know James and Paul both use this word works, but there's two different authors using the same word, but they're talking about different things. Paul's saying you're not saved by works of the law, but James is saying, but saving faith will resu resu uh, result in works of faith. Does that make sense? We are not against works here. I'm just saying you're not saved by works of the law, but I am saying that your faith better have some works to, to prove it, to show it, to, to provide evidence. Works of faith, not works of the law. Does that make sense? Okay. This, as I mentioned, this is, this is a foundational Christian idea. I mean, the, there was a huge shift five or 600 years ago in how we thought about what it meant to be made right with God based on this idea and some other ideas that were made right with God through faith in Jesus. So I know none of you lived in Europe and were Catholic 600 years ago, but some of you might have come from churches that had some procedures, some protocols that, well, if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to do these things. You're going to have to dress a certain way. I talked about this last week. You're going to have to dress a certain way. You're going to have to attend a bunch of services. You're going to have to recite this prayer, repeat it after me, pray in tongues, do all this stuff. And if you don't do this stuff, I'm not sure you're saved. I want to help you get out of that because that... It is only through faith in Jesus that 
uh, we're made right with God. And I would love to speak with any of you that, that this is a new idea and you're ready to respond to Jesus. I'm gonna stick around up front if anyone wants to talk about this or pray about this. But I really, this is like core, core Christianity that the way you're made right with Jesus, which implies that at, at one point you weren't right with Jesus, is through faith in Jesus, and that faith should result in works of faith. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to dismiss you. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you for being our propitiation, that the, the substitutionary sacrifice. I feel like, Jesus, I grasp that better today than I did a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Thank you, Jesus, that you took all of God's wrath that was rightly and justly being stored up for us and still awaits those who have not put their faith in you, but for those who have put their faith in you, Jesus, we are free from that threat. Jesus, I ask that you would give us faith as a gift, as it says in Romans 3, that this is a gift, that you are the one even that gives us faith. You are the one that begins this process. We bless you, Lord. I ask that you would begin to work and, and draw people, God, that you would preveniently begin to, to just put your finger on individuals who maybe are hearing this concept for the first time, for them to understand, I, have, I am to put my faith in Jesus. Works will follow, not proceed that. And that we are saved by putting our trust in you, Lord. We bless you, Jesus. I ask that this would land, that this would click, that this would turn on light bulbs in people's hearts and minds. And I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.